Well, here we are in Zion, the place of refuge that God has designated, but he hasn't driven the smoke out. <clears throat> this I've come to love as a very peaceful, wonderful place over the years, and uh, it has great meaning for us for the future. And God does say in Isaiah he's going to provide a covert from the heat and the rain and put a bubble over it, basically, is what it amounts to, uh, so that we don't have problems and the climate is also going to change to an Edenic condition, as Isaiah 55 clearly shows, or is it 51 maybe? But still, as our nation begins to burn, uh, we see the smoke in the air. Uh, This may be the result, a lot of it, of California and Oregon, mainly California burning. Oregon's fire in Washington seems to go more north and east over Montana. But I saw the other day that California now has burned over 3 million acres. Uh, which is the greatest ever beyond. There was a lot of fires in 2018, but this surpasses that. That's about roughly 4,500 square miles burned, which would be a an area, say, 10 miles wide by 450 miles long. That's a pretty good swath of burn. So, uh, And they're continuing. They haven't stopped. Oregon, I think they've settled down a bit, but there's still some burning going off there as well. So what you're seeing here is prophetic. (laughs) It's what's going on, and uh, we're still seeing the results of it right here. I had a a thought the other day, we're going to have to change the saying. You remember the Lone Ranger always had a mask on. Say, who was that masked man? And now I drive through and everybody's wearing masks, so we'll have to change it to who was that unmasked man? Because uh, there's one of those once in a while. <laughs> Namely us. Maybe if the city employees come around, we'll go like this. No, I don't think they'll bother us. There were quite a few people actually on the streets that noticed that we drove through that didn't have their masks on. So anyway, uh, lunch today is gratis, thanks to a couple of willing donors. And uh, it wound up being at Porter's. I've never eaten there, but I hear the locals up here really like Porter's. Uh, it's down below the Bumbleberry Inn. right on the road. As we go as you go downhill it's on the left. Uh, Zion Park Motels there. A lot of us used to stay there in the in the early years of the feast. The school crosswalk. Yeah, Zion's banks on the right and Bumbleberry ends on the left and it's down in there. So we've got a reservation about uh, a little after twelve, twelve thirty. So I guess I'm constrained to hurry. If we're not singing, that helps. Okay, the first thing I'll bring up today is I just received an email from our lawyer, and uh, we've had an addendum to the lawsuit. They've added some more stuff to it. And actually, I'm kind of happy with this in a strange sort of way. Uh, because everything that they're saying is totally, utterly untrue and bizarre, if you will. And I communicated with the attorney this morning as well. But the main part of this allegation, other than trying to get us to pay for uh, the bills they've been sending us, which they there was never a TIC vote to make them the managers, never was one made, but they assumed that they would become the managers without a vote. 
So they've been billing us ever since for all kinds of things, including maintenance, which they've done none of. And we've done all the maintenance on the road and on the wells, and are going to do some more on a well, I think, right here soon. Uh, so it's just crazy stuff. But without getting into all that, which really doesn't matter, it's just more of the same. Now they're claiming that I have sold lots that are part of the TIC to Gloria Moss. And they named lots 75 and 76. Well, those lots are the ones that are behind Gloria and between her and Kirby and Jocelyn. There's two acres in there between you and her, okay? Those were never in the TIC at all. They're part of the 18 acres that comprise the, the church area. We're never part of the TIC, period, in any way. So they're claiming that I sold TIC lots to Gloria that aren't even in the TIC. It's just weird. Not only that, I haven't sold Gloria any lots, period. And they have obviously no paperwork to prove that I sold anything to her, because if it hasn't happened, there's no paperwork. I mean, if you sell some land, you have to file it with the county, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Hadn't happened. This is coming mostly from Criders and Tates, uh, and all the others signed on to it, all of them. Even the Varys, the Tainers, the Rome Hills, all of them signed on to this. I didn't. I didn't go through the list and look. Yeah, the Bellers are in here too. All of them. It's a total lie. Nothing to it. Yeah. Huh? Well, the TIC's been thrown out by the court. Doesn't even exist anymore. And yet here they're claiming that I'm selling TIC land, and there is no such thing as TIC land anymore. Uh, and the ones that they're claiming I sold were never in it in the first place, even when it existed. 75 and 76 are behind her and, and, and uh, behind you guys. Uh, Cliff thinks that they're probably just trying to get me to settle. Now, last time we went in for a settlement conference, all they did was make more demands and more demands. And we offered to give them a little bit, I forget now. Uh, and that wasn't enough. They wanted more. Actually, they want all the land is what they want. So uh, now they're trying these extra things to say that I've done something illegal and wrong. And they're trying, and they ask the judge, since they've been sending us illegal bills, he wants the judge to declare all of TIC land theirs, your lots, uh, because we have this lien against them. Well, they have not filed a lien, and they can't file a lien because they have no authority, period, ever have that. So it's, it's, all, it's all just out of whole plot, blue sky. There's, there's just nothing to it. It's just lies, more lies, fabricated lies. How, how I, I, I'm dumbfounded as to how they could have even come up with this idea that A, I had sold those two lots to her, and B, they know good and well they're not in the TIC. All the T, I mean, there's a, there's a map. There's a designation of all the lots that were in the TIC. You've seen it. And these two were never there. Well, the judge threw it out. We've got the papers. Right. The first judge that Patsy and I went to 
He said it was illegal. Well, that was something you took in that had nothing to do with any of the lawsuit from Criders and Takes. Right. Well, he said it was illegal, didn't he? No, he said there was an agreement. Well, and the judge that's involved in this, Judge Kenneth Gregory, uh, also threw, he threw the TIC out saying it was illegal. So it's it's totally illegal, and all this stuff is just sand in the air. Uh, means nothing. Here's a communication I had with the attorney this morning, because I just got these in email, and then I I uh, printed them out. If you want to look at them, uh, this is from Cliff Gravett, our attorney. Dear Daryl, see the attached documents. Basically, they're seeking to amend. Uh, their complaint to add a claim for contribution and breach of the settlement agreement's provisions regarding the right of first refusal since you transferred some lots to a third party. I don't think it really matters since I think the likelihood that the settlement agreement is going to be set aside completely is fairly high. And he says, Matthew Barlow, that's Writers, Tates, and et al. attorney, uh, also reached out to me again to see if there's any interest in settlement. I haven't responded. He argues, well, Barlow's arguing that if we don't try to settle again, they're going to spend a bunch of money uh, doing an appeal and then relitigating the case and starting all the way over at square one with you trying to evict them and them counterclaiming that they had an agreement to purchase the property, which they didn't have ever to begin with. And he says, if you don't want to make peace with them in a settlement, this will probably go on for a long time. But I don't think you have any interest in settlement, so if your position has changed, please let me know. Why settle with the devil? <laughs> you know? No, our position hasn't changed. We own the land. We've always owned the land. Uh, they never have a claim to land. And any, and the one that the Gullers turned in there uh, said that they had an, a lease to buy, which is not a, actually a legal term. They meant an option, a lease with purchase option. But they filed that with the county, it was an absolute, total, outright lie. Our attorneys looked at the lease. There's only one lease. They tried to say there was three or four different leases. No, there's only been one. Now there's been two since we, we did a new one with you guys uh, once this happened. But it essentially says the same thing, except we didn't say it had to be 49 years. I just left it there where you could fill in what you wanted. Uh, so... Whatever. I don't think it's going to. I mean, the courts didn't have us shut down in the first place with COVID. And Cliff said the earliest this could even begin to start having a trial date would be next spring. And with the calendar loading up and loading up with probably obviously more important issues through the whole county, uh, this could take a long time to ever get to court. And the way things are going, uh, there's not going to be a court there a whole lot longer. <laughs> so I'm, I am not in the least bit worried about this. But as I said, in one way, I'm kind of happy to see it because it's everything that they've sued us for so far has been totally bogus with no basis. And now we have something even more bizarre that they would claim would sold something in the TIC without giving them first refusal to buy it, and it wasn't even in the TIC, and it hasn't been sold anyway. What was somebody smoking? What were they drinking? 
Who were they talking to? Who dreamed this up and told it to them? I, I, it's crazy. Anyway, that's what he said. And then I wrote back and said, Cliff, this is totally bizarre. A, lot 75 and 76 were never even in the TIC, but part of the church parcel of 18 acres. B, no lots have been sold to Gloria Moss in or out of the TIC. And C, they have no evidence whatsoever of such a sale. There was not a sale and no paperwork to show such. This is created right out of blue sky, just like the original lease to buy, as Geller termed it. The lease contained no such language, with no basis whatsoever, as you well know. This is even stranger, with no basis whatsoever. Then I got a note from him just before I left, uh, the attorney again. He says, weird. <laughs> it's just weird. Then he says, I figured you would have let me know if you were contemplating transfers of property in the contested lots. I assume they're trying to pressure you to settle. So, there you have it. Just bizarre. Weird is his word. But, if it ever did get to court, the more of this kind of manure they put out, the easier it is to show in court, Judge, this never happened. Didn't even start to happen. Couldn't have happened. How did they dream it up? I did say I might put some cows back there behind Gloria's place. And I plan to, so she can feed them. Most of them are hers, they're not mine. One of them is mine still. And, uh, put them back there and that'll be taken care of. But that doesn't mean that I'm selling the property. It's just letting some cows on it. And that's not unusual either. You might recall back when uh, Durkees were living up there where uh, Evan and Daphne are now, uh, I let them run an electric fence all the way down to where uh, Andrew and Jessica are now, and uh, they ran their sheep, uh, their goats in there. So it was the first time we've let people use church property for grazing their animals. And I let Durkees put their goats back on that 40 acres, clear at the back. Uh, uh, I've run goats back there along with Johnson's at the time. So that's not unusual, you know. Well, Ephesians 5 came to mind when I saw this. Interesting, this would come on the fifth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe they planned to have it hit us so, that, so it would be a gut punch during the feast. <laughs> and I, when I read it, I just I had to laugh. This is just so totally bizarre. It didn't upset my feast. Uh, I said, oh, great, they filed this. Uh, just a bunch of more lies that are easy to disprove. Anyway, he says in Ephesians I, 6, is where I wanted, uh, verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Well, we're in the evil day now, and Satan is trying to destroy us. He wants God's land taken over by these rebels, who, some of whom have actual outright demon problems, and I know it. And they're in the clutches of Satan and the rebellious attitudes that they have and the lies that they're telling and the thievery that they have committed. They've stolen tens of thousands of dollars in lease payments and in maintenance payments and so on, and yet they're billing us for it. It's just 
utterly ridiculous. So we're not really just fighting them. Satan is the one that really wants to see us gone and wants to see me gone. I think the scriptural proof of that specifically. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Above all here, we need faith and trust in God. And that's the ingredient that Christ mentioned as possibly not being around when he returns. Will I find faith on the earth? He won't find much. He'll find it just in a few, but not very many. So when we face the attacks of Satan, and this isn't new, you know. Uh, Herbert Armstrong felt very definitely that Satan was behind the state of California and Stan Rader attack on the church back in the 70s. And I have no doubt he was, because it was the church of God. And Satan wants the church of God destroyed above all things on this earth. And he knows we're out here is the beginning of the latter temple in the right place, doing the right things. And he wants this destroyed even worse than he wanted worldwide destroyed. So... Take on faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And then he mentions praying for him, because he's the one that's preaching this stuff. Isn't it interesting that I went through Jeremiah 11 just about, what, two days ago? and reviews exactly what God said is going to happen to these rebels and makes it very clear in the end-time prophecies. And then a couple of days later you get hit with this. Now this had been in the planning and the lawyer had been drawing it up before that, so it's not a direct result of that. But it's interesting that Satan was prepared already ahead of time to dump this on us right after going through what God is going to ultimately do with them, the judgment has already been made. Now, they may have a little more space to repent. I don't know. I wish they would. But it does not appear that that is the case. And I think that I may have stated that the other day when I talked about this. And here's proof right here that they have no intention of repenting. They're still going for the land. They want the lots that you are living on, most of you. And when they will lie and cheat and steal and file false lawsuits, what do you think they're going to do to you if they have control of your land? What do you think they'll do? They'll want to subdivide it, they'll want to dump you out, and they'll want to make money off of it. That's what they'd want to do. So we do need to pray that God not let them prevail and that his judgment come true there in Jeremiah 11 and other places. So I do not feel threatened by this. It's just, it's an empty threat in that sense. It has no basis whatsoever, so it's nothing to worry about. It's just further proof from our side, if it ever came before a judge, that it's all lies. They can't prove any of the things that they claimed in their lawsuit to start with, and they certainly can't prove this. <laughs> you cannot prove that which has not been done. You've got no, no paperwork. So, I don't know what kind of gossip goes around and where it comes from, but it makes me wonder sometimes. All right, let's go back today to First Kings. Uh, there are some more interesting parallels going on. We saw at the end of chapter 2 that, that uh, Solomon had destroyed his enemies. He can't have peace with them there. And there again, it just underlines what we just received this morning. 
And then we showed how Solomon uh, had the right attitude toward God. God blessed him beyond the things that he even asked. And then the two harlots with the two babies and God's abs absolute giving of Solomon the kind of wisdom to figure out a way immediately and quickly to solve such an issue. So he had God's help. So chapter 4, King Solomon was king over all Israel and goes to name uh, the people that were involved and so on. But I want to skip down to verse 20 because it's germane to uh, building of the temple and where we are today. Verse 20, Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude. So God's promise to Abraham had already been being fulfilled at that point. And now we fast forward to today, and uh, if there were three, four million then, uh, there's hundreds of millions of Israelites today. So that sand of the sea and as the stars of heaven has continued and gotten bigger and bigger. Anyway, there was the sand of sea by the, uh, in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. They had a new king, and the king was blessing them and helping them, and they were happy. Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Mitzrayim. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. He ruled for 40 years before he died, it says a little later. So there was 40 years in which, we'll see in a moment, it also says there was peace. And they brought presents to Solomon all the days that he lived, another 40 years. Uh, and Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour and three score measures of meal and 10 fat oxen, 20 oxen out of the pasture, 100 sheep beside deer and roe and fallow deer and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river to, from Kipsa even to Asa over all the kings on this side of the river and he had peace on all sides round about him. No one fighting him. Peace all the way around. Now that would include a big area here. Uh, we're in the center of it. Uh, the river may be speaking of the Colorado. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll get some maps one of these days from underground, and then we'll know all the places. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the furthest tribe north. Beersheba was the furthest south city. <coughs> All the days of Solomon. So for 40 years, complete peace in Israel. Now you can go through the history of Israel and you won't find much of that. <laughs> it's just not there. Uh, there's wars and fighting all through kings and chronicles and so on, except during the reign of Solomon. Now, this particular verse in verse 25 is what led me back here to 1 Kings to start with. Because there are a couple of references, uh, a couple other references to the vine and the fig tree in the scriptures. Uh, there's only three places the people sitting under their vine fig tree are mentioned in the whole Bible. I've heard it all my life. And it's been referred to in sermons that I heard maybe decades ago that you sit under your vine and fig tree. But when I looked it up, there's actually only three places it's mentioned. This is the first, during the reign of Solomon. Now, we've not gotten to the temple building yet, but I want to go to the other two places that sitting under the vine, trig, vine and fig tree are mentioned because they do have to do with this end-time work that God has started. Let's go first of all to uh, Micah 4. You're familiar with Micah 4. 
I want to go through this uh, because it does pertain to today. All these prophecies do, obviously, but here in the first verse of Micah 4, but in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountains. He says in Jeremiah 31 that the watchman will stand on Mount Ephraim. Let me go back and read that, tie that in. It's, it's really good to tie to this. At the same time, Jeremiah 31 says the eternal, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the eternal, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. So the only place of safety is going to be in the wilderness. And then he tells you a little later, verse 4, again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. Virgin of Israel is speaking of the church. Now, that's obvious in very, very many scriptures. You've been adorned and you'll make merry. They were making merry in Solomon's day there, living in peace. You shall yet plant vines. Oh, plant vines. There's grapes. The vine and fig tree, the vine is speaking of grapes. So you'll be planting them. Uh, in the mountains of Samaria, of Israel, the planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchmen, his two watchmen, uh, upon the mount of Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us get up to Zion to the Lord our God. So the remnant is going to be told when signs and wonders occur in Zechariah 3, uh, they're going to be telling people, get up to Zion. Arise, get up to Zion. That's where God is. For thus says the Eternal, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish you, praise you, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. He's not talking about all Israel here, but the remnant. And spiritual Israel is the church. I'll bring them from all over the earth, he says. So, in Zion, grace in the wilderness. Zion is in the wilderness. They'll plant vineyards. So, we go back to Micah 4, and it says, in the last days. So that's speaking of the time as we now are in. So, God is going to establish his people, spiritual Israel, the remnant, to build the church, to build the temple uh, in the top of the mountains and is exalted above the hills, and people will come to do so. Haggai talks about that. And many peoples, says nations, many peoples, or from many nations actually, shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. So God is going to begin the work, and it will be centered in Zion and Jerusalem. This is Zion, Jerusalem, just north of us, about 50 miles as the crow flies. And the law of God will go forth. Uh, who's going to teach the law of God but God's church? No one else is. And if you go to Zechariah 4, you'll find that the two olive trees there are teaching the church, all seven that have gathered from all over. So this is what is coming up. And he will judge among many people and rebuke strong nations far off so he's going to judge many people and nations that are far off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this is going to start in a smaller group, the church, who are going to come here to live in peace and not make war 
There's nothing to war against, and God protects and says he'll be a wall of fire around and a covert from the heat and the rain above. He's going to take care of it. And this will then spread, because once he starts it here, it will never end, and Christ will come back, and he'll spread it all around the world, so that everybody has peace and safety and Edenic conditions everywhere. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the eternal of hosts have spoken it. For all people will walk, every one, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the eternal our God forever and ever. So once he establishes it, it's going to be there from now on. In that day, says the eternal, will I assemble her that limps, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. Now, he's drawing this down to the church. Uh, this is the latter days. Things are going to start getting repaired after they're all blown apart. And he's going to give leadership and rulership, first of all, to the church. We'll see that right here. I'll take care of her that was crippled, that was lame, and that I've cast out. Well, who's he cast out? Revelation 3, the church. Spewed us out of his mouth as vomit. That's the ones that he has afflicted, and we've been afflicted now for all these, actually, decades at this point. Now, I will make her that limped a remnant. The remnant's mentioned very clearly in Haggai and Zechariah. And her that was cast far off, a strong people, and the Eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So he's going to bring back the remnant. He's going to give them peace and begin to rule them here. Remember in Zechariah 2, he says that he will come and dwell with us in Zion. And he tells us to flee to Zion, to be here, because he will be here whether visibly or not, remains to be seen. Uh, but he will be here in any case directly with his people. Uh, and you, O tower of the flock, the tower is the watchman, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, they'll have strong leaders, unto you shall it come even the first dominion the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So he's going to give oversight, rule, leadership to the leaders of the church. Now, later on, he's going to give it bigger leadership with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so on in the millennium. But the first will come to the daughter of Zion. Now, why do you cry out aloud? Now, here's one that shows you that I'm, what I'm saying is correct. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? Well, if this was talking about Christ ruling over the millennium at this point, in this chapter, uh, he's not dead. Uh, he's alive. And he will be alive then as king. But this is speaking of a people who has no king anymore no leader anymore, and their counselor is perished. That could be none other than Herbert Armstrong. He was our leader. He was the one who God used to raise up the church, and in that sense was king. Uh, the Old Testament uses that kind of terminology, though he wasn't a, specifically a king, uh, an apostle instead, but the one in charge. And counselor certainly is represented because he was the main and chief counselor for the church. And he is dead. So, he says, uh, For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. So this is speaking of the church now, not of Israel in the millennium, because she will not be beset with pains as a woman in travail to give birth. When the millennium comes, she will have already given birth. 
But right now, we're still travailing to give birth, and we have no leader over the church anymore. The whole church. It's all split and scattered and splintered. Then he says, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. That's uh, Isaiah 7. He does say that the daughter of Zion, the virgin, will bring forth Christ. In other words, that's what we're trying to produce is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So he says, it will bring forth the likeness of Christ. Remember what I was trying to tell you yesterday? We're all types of Christ. Pretty poor, shadowy ones, maybe. But that's what we've been called to be, is to be like him. So we are a direct, a direct type of Christ. Every last one of us who have been converted and given the Spirit of God. That's what he made us. He called us individually to be that. So why does he say then, let your light shine from the hill? <laughs> because they are supposed to see Christ in us. He won't be visible at this point, but, he's, but he is to be seen in us. So we are to be travailing to bring forth his character, his nature, his mind, his way. That's what we're travailing to bring forth. So, be in travail. Be in pain and labor. You know, it's hard to become Christ-like. It's very, very difficult to do so. So, he says, be just like a woman in labor. Push, push, push to be what you ought to be. For now shall you go forth out of the city. Those cities will not exist in the millennium. They won't even be there. The cities across this land, New York, Detroit, Chicago, Atlanta, Houston, they will not exist anymore. They'll be gone. Totally, utterly gone. How do I know that? Isaiah 5 makes it very clear. He says, God hates the cities. <laughs> Let me go back there. Hold your finger here. Since I brought it up, let's go see it. We've seen it before, but let's see it again. Isaiah 5. Verse 8. Well, wait a minute. Let's, well, that's all right. Let's start in verse 8. Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Woe to anybody who builds subdivisions house to house. Woe to anyone who lays field to field, even. In other words, there need to be big areas in between even fields for people to have peace and elbow room so we're not all jammed together like rats in a trap. Why do we have such crime in cities? Because people are compressed together, and they are uncomfortable, and then they fight among themselves, like rats do. And that's been shown and proven. So, when God himself says, woe to him that builds house to house, that means that these cities and all their houses next to each other are going to be gone. And even fields of property ownership will have space, green space in between, so that there's Plenty of space for everybody, and nobody's jammed together. So when I say these cities will go away, it's based on that verse and some others that are somewhat similar. They just won't be there because that's not God's way. Even the holy city, Jerusalem, if you go back to Revelation 21 and read it and figure out the dimensions that are given there, it's 1,500 miles that way and 1,500 miles this way, and it may be 1,500 miles straight up, like a cube or a triangle. And you know how many are dwelling there? 144,000 plus the angels. 
and the Father and the Son. Now that's 1,500 miles, that's from the California coast to East Texas. That's, that's how big that is. So if you go from here, uh, it would go even out into the Pacific Ocean. Now you know what that tells me? The Earth used to be one landmass. Even the continental shelves, if you study it, fit pretty closely together. There's been some distortion from movement. But it was all one landmass. And then in the days of Peleg, Genesis says, was the land divided. Now that wasn't the people he's talking about. The people were divided in the days of Nimrod, when God confused the language and the people spread out. But this used to all be one landmass. So when God says that Jerusalem will be 1,500 miles across and long, it'll be in the center of what will then again be one landmass. Am I speculating or not? I don't think so. God is going to join it all together the way it used to be. Because when he created it, in Genesis 1, he said, let there be land, let it appear. Well, there had been land before, and it was all underwater. And that's why you have fossils at 13,000, 14,000 feet up in the mountains. It's because it was all underwater. And it says that he brought it out of the water. So it was one landmass that had come up out of the water. And God then saw what man did and he destroyed mankind, except for eight. And then in the days of Peleg, not too long after the flood, the land itself was divided into the continents. So, I think he's going to do that exact same thing again, bring it all back together. What did he say? He says it was very good, didn't he, when he created it all? And he even said that the uh, the sun and the moon and the way he set them in the heavens were very good. Well, it's very obvious that there was a 360-day year and there was an eclipse of the sun, moon, and earth every 30 days. So that there was no question of when the new moon was. It just happened every 30 days and there was uh, an eclipse there. So, that was very good. Now we, since probably the days of Hezekiah, might have happened in Joshua's long day, some of it, I don't know, but maybe in the days of Hezekiah, uh, the sundial went back and suddenly instead of a 360-day year, we had a 365 and a quarter day year. Why not in a circle do we have, why do we have 360 degrees? in a circle. Because that's what it used to be. Now the reality is today it's not 360 degrees, it's 365 and a quarter that it makes a full circle. But that's not what we use. We use 360 because that's what it originally was. And it was very good. Now try to figure the calendar out with 365 and a quarter and it's a nightmare. Because nothing fits together mathematically. So God knew what he was doing, and he knows what he's doing right now, and he's going to do the same thing again. So when, when the millennium is set up, it's already very clear we're going to have a 360-day year again. How do we know? Because he says that the period of time that the two witnesses preach on the earth will be 1,260 days. The book of Revelation uses three terms. 1,260 days, 42 months, and three and a half years. And there is no way that you can have those three things occurring with anything but a 360-day year. 42 months is three and a half years. And 1,260 days is 12 times, uh, is, uh, multiplies out to be uh, 
what am I trying to say? 1260 is three and a half years as well, but only if you use the 360 day year. 365 and a quarter, the book of Revelation couldn't say that. They just couldn't say it. It wouldn't be true. It, it couldn't happen. With a 360, it can. So at some point, God, between now and the tribulation, which is a very short way away, I think it'll happen probably, uh, probably Passover of, of uh, 23 is when it'll start. So we're not very far from a 360-day year, if that be the case. And with these end-time events occurring, we know we're right there, very, very close to it. So we'll go back to that. And I wouldn't be surprised if God had his church from Zion announce it ahead of time. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, we already have. It's on tape going back years and years on our website. We've been saying this is going to happen for a long, long time now. But I wouldn't be surprised when I, when I made that comment. I wouldn't be surprised if it was broadcast or announced to the world from Zion at the time that it starts. So that the world cannot deny it. You see, the point is to prove who God is. And to prove that God did this, it wasn't just a, a meteor that shook the earth and suddenly made it go to 360. I, I think God will make it plain that it's Him doing it. Like everything else that will happen, it's Him. Wow, is it already 11.54? Oh, you said 1230 to 45. Okay. Well, let, let me finish a little bit of some of the thought here then. But I think it's nice to consider and perhaps to some degree spe speculate about these things. We've always speculated about conditions in the millennium. Gerald Waterhouse was the main one doing that, and he'd go on wherever he went, three, four, five hours talking about how he pictured the millennium, basically what it amounted to. And uh, I think some of his ideas and speculation probably uh, bear some serious thought. Some of it was just his idea. But, you know, it, it's easy to realize There'll be no theft. Okay? He says, if you start to do wrong, Isaiah 30, 21, you'll have somebody tap you on the shoulder and say, no, 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 don't do that. There'll be no bank robberies. There won't be any banks. Uh, and there'll be no theft because it will not be allowed. So that means that there'll be no, no door locks. There'll be no keys. There'll be no padlocks. There'll be no need for security. You won't have a lock on your house. Why? What's the purpose? Nobody's going to enter your house and steal anything. Nobody's going to kill you. If we have cars, they won't have keys. Uh, there just won't be any such thing. No need. You can go through subjects like that one, for instance, locks and security, and... Uh, There'll be a lot of things that aren't needed. Why do you need something to protect you from others when others are not going to be allowed to sin against you? Though, a lot of things won't need to be. But it is interesting to think about that time, and I do believe that he's going to bring all the landmass together, and Jerusalem will be the center and there'll be lots of space there. Figure out the cubic space of 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles and maybe 1,500 high and divide that by the cubic space that an individual takes up. How much space do you take up? A cubic foot? Some of us are pushing two. Uh, but not very much if it's all put into a square. You're certainly not a cubic yard. I know that. That's nine cubic feet. Um, so divide that out and you'll find that there's an awful lot of elbow room in the New Jerusalem. An awful lot. I did it one time. I don't remember how much room I came up with. But I'm one of those people that doesn't like cities. 
I'm one of those people that like elbow room in wilderness and lots of space. And uh, when I multiplied that, I thought, yeah, <laughs> going to be a lot of space there. We're, we did the best we could where we are today, giving everybody at least one acre, two or three if they wanted it, maybe. But it gives them a little more elbow space than they had in town, at least. You know, we we've got some space. It's it's all we could do at this point, but it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Anyway, going on down here, we're to to travail and we're to leave the city and go dwell in the field. Field there can be translated wilderness or. Uh, dry place or desert, and, and that's corroborated by scriptures which say God will raise the churches up in the wilderness and the desert there in Isaiah 41, uh, where he says there'll be seven trees planted in the desert and the wilderness. Seven churches uh, will be there. So that's the kind of place he says to go. You shall go even to Babylon. You don't expatriate and go to Honduras or Chile or Philippines or somewhere within Babylon, this Babylonian America that we live in. There you shall be delivered. Well, it just so happens that Zion and Jerusalem are in America today, which is recognized now by quite a few people as being the end-time Babylon. Uh, and we're the only country that even fits the description of the end-time Babylon in, in Jeremiah 50 and 51 and in Revelation 18 and other places. It's, this country is the only one that even begins to fit the picture of end-day Babylon. So we're to be within the United States uh, in the wilderness of Babylon. And that is where you'll be delivered. Well, you go to a multitude of scriptures... And deliverance is to Zion, and you go to Zion for refuge, and so on. That puts, then, Zion within the United States, because you go even to Babylon, to Zion. So it has to be here. There's nothing about the little Israel over in the Middle East that fits the description of the modern-day end-time Babylon at all. Nothing. The only candidates might be Russia or China, and they don't fit it at all either. We're the ones who've been the hammer of the whole earth. Not Russia, not China, and certainly not Israel. It's us. So I think it's fairly easy to prove that the true Zion is in the United States. He calls Ephraim his firstborn in Jeremiah 31, right down below what I did read there. Uh, he's changed it away from Reuben, he's given it to Ephraim. And we are the nation that runs over the wall, as he says in Genesis 49, that has everything you could possibly need and all the things that Deuteronomy 8, 7, and 8 say will be in the promised land are in this land. So people don't want to believe it, but the Bible says it. Then he says, Now also many peoples are gathered against you that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. Uh, they will lust after it and desire it. And they're going to get everything but Zion. They'll get Jerusalem. I want to get back to the temple in First Kings and then bring that forward as well. But it is under these circumstances right here that we're talking about, about the church, that he says everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree. This is the second place that that is mentioned in the Bible. Solomon's reign, Micah 4, and can anybody guess where the other one is? Let's go to Zechariah 3. Now, chapter 4 explains very clearly in verse 14 that these are the two anointed ones, the two olive 
trees standing here feeding the church, all seven lamps, uh, are the two of Revelation 11, the two preachers that go out. That's the only place the two anointed ones are mentioned in the Bible is here in Zechariah 4 and in Zechariah, I mean in uh, Revelation 11. Only places. So that's whom we're speaking of. Chapter 3 uh, begins it with Joshua standing as the high priest and Satan standing at his right hand to resist. So when the work of God at the end begins toward the latter temple, because that's what Haggai and Zechariah are all about. Satan is going to be right there, standing at the right hand of one of the leaders at least, to resist it, to stop it. Now, does that make Ephesians 6 a little clearer? (laughs) What Satan is trying to do is destroy us, and we're fighting against principalities and powers of the air, not just human beings. And Satan is using human beings right among us to try to destroy us, to divide us, to conquer us, and take over the land and own it themselves. You think God's going to allow that? I don't for one minute think he's going to allow that. Now, I think we're going to leave there and go to Jerusalem to build the temple and to build Jerusalem. Uh, But that's when God says, not when the devil says. So you can be sure. Satan is there. He's trying. He's resisting. And the Eternal said to Satan, the Eternal rebuke you, O Satan. So God promises right here that when Satan stands against the church, as God begins to work, that he will rebuke him. So he's taking care of that. He goes on down and talks about this situation. Joshua had some filthy clothes, has to be changed uh, to righteousness, clothes of righteousness. That's what white clothes, new clothes, clean clothes are, is righteousness. So uh, they did that and warned him to diligently obey. And then in verse 7 it says, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my charge, my statutes, my laws, my commands, then you shall also judge my house, and shall also keep my courts. And I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. So he's speaking of his throne, and the angels, and the 24 elders, and those that stand by as he is giving Uh, this story to uh, Zechariah. Now, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you. That's the church, congregation. For they are men of wonder. Sign and wonder, it says in my margin. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. He speaks of Zerubbabel as the branch, the righteous branch. Uh, chapter 42, I think it is, of Isaiah, says that he is a man from the north, a righteous man from the north who will come from the east. And I think we know very well who that is. He was born in the northern U.S. He's currently on the east coast. And he's going to come what direction if he comes from the east to the west? All makes sense. Now, he says he'll bring forth his servant the branch. When? When these signs and wonders occur. You can go to Isaiah 52, verses, I believe it's 8 and 9, that say that the two will see eye to eye. They don't beforehand, but they'll see eye to eye at the time that God turns it around for Zion. In other words, he begins to bless, and we have healings, and we'll have the legs of the deer and the halt, the lame will walk and will be restored so that we can build a temple. So this is the time of the two witnesses, them coming together in verse 8 and beginning to preach to the church, the remnant that is beginning to gather. They're to teach them, very clear in chapter 4. 
For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. <coughs> What's the stone? Christ is the chief cornerstone. And he will be the primary one here. He will be the one who comes to dwell with us, as Zechariah 2 says, right back here. Uh, a little further down than I was looking. Uh, Sing and rejoice, verse 10, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I will come and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. And many people shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Same language used in Micah 4. Sounds like a lot more people than it is. But he talks about the remnant all, all through here. And he will inherit Judah, his portion. I've said, he says 10% will come. One out of 10, I, end of Isaiah 6. That's the remnant. What's his portion? 10%. That's why a tithe is 10%. That's God's portion. It's his God's portion of the money. It's God's portion of the animals. It's God's portion of people. That's what he will have. And that is true of all Israel, the hundreds of millions that we have. He will save 10%, or a little less actually, to go into the millennium. He will keep his tithe of Israel, and then he will use it for his purposes to, to build the millennium. So, are we establishing what time we're talking about here? Uh, two witnesses talking to the church. Before Joshua will be one stone, that's Christ, with seven eyes. Seven eyes, seven angels over the seven churches, Revelation 1 and 2. And I will engrave the graving up thereof, says the eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. I suspect that will probably be Passover. And it could be this coming Passover, very likely. When he will remove the iniquity and he will begin to bless in the first month. As Joel 2 says in other places. Now, in that day, that day, says the eternal of hosts, shall every man call his neighbor or shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree? So Micah 4 talks about this time when the church is to prevail and to bring forth Christ, and God will bless us and deliver us in the wilderness, and every man will sit under his vine and fig tree in peace, because Christ says in Haggai 2, verse 9, In this place will I bring peace. So the peace that Solomon had was called every man under his vine and fig tree for 40 years. And the only other time that that expression is used is about the church in Micah 4 and about the church under Christ who will come dwell with us in Zechariah 3, which is speaking of the latter temple, its leaders, the two witnesses, and the 10% remnant who come and will dwell in peace under the vine and fig tree. So there are parallels between Solomon and the end time church and the building of the temple in the end time church. We'll get into a little bit of that later. Let's go to lunch.